Welcome to the Midnight Readings. Now, if you did not listen to the last episode of this, uh, which you should be able to, uh, you know, uh, see that it's different from the rest of my normal Midnight Hour episodes, uh, because it has a, uh, it has the Justice League on it. It's actually the, um, the cover image of the book that we're reading right now called Justice League of America Exterminators. Uh, this is now chapter one i suggest that you reach the prelude uh, i mean it's only what 10 minutes so i don't know i talk about it a little bit at the end and uh but not that important uh now let's go ahead and get into chapter one chapter one now keystone city was awash with the warmth and color of spring at the city walk outdoor marketplace Street vendors sold lemonade and Italian ice and hot pretzels. A juggler on a unicycle drew a small crowd of lawyers and software salesmen on their lunch breaks. From somewhere nearby came the sound of voices raised in song, an a cappella group from one of the local colleges. Across the street, where a, historical, where a historic building was being renovated to become the new Keystone Children's Museum, construction workers sat on scaffolding, eating lunch, and watching women as as women walked by in light, light cotton dresses and had just emerged from a long winter at the back of their closets. It really was a glorious day. The whole city had an, had an infectious, upbeat vibe, but Wally West wasn't catching the infection. The truth was, he had caught it. After lunch with his Aunt Iris, he had, pa- he had passed by a vendor selling long-stemmed roses, cash, and carry on the sidewalk and wanted to bring some home to his wife, but the good feeling had worn off. He did not have any cash on him and had to stand in line at the ATM behind half a dozen people who obviously weren't in any rush. Wally, impatient, fought it out with his desire to get roses for Linda, and the roses won, but only barely. At the front of the line was a 50-ish woman with a look and carriage of a schoolteacher. She stared befuddled at the screen for long seconds each time new options presented themselves, as if she had never used an ATM before. Come on, Wally mentally prodded her, bouncing on his heels. He tried to be patient. He really did. Linda was always telling him to slow it down, and the truth was, most of the time he only ever did it for her. To take her dancing or out to dinner or even to a movie, he had to force himself to relax, to take a break, to take a breath, and savor what life had to offer him. Not... Not that might happen in the next few seconds. Linda was worth it. Even thinking about her right now was enough to calm him down a little. To dilute his frustration with the woman at the cash machine, who could not seem to figure out how to enter the amount of her deposit. Long-stemmed roses for Linda. He pictured it in his mind, the smile they would bring to her stunning features. Thinking if he could slow down this long, maybe they ought to be... Maybe they ought to do dinner out tonight as well. His first thought was Rocco's in Chicago. Then he thought better of it. Something something right here in Keystone. Maybe Dixie Kitchen, the light Cajun Cafe on Bridge Boulevard. Wally did his best to suppress his nervous energy. The woman at last finished with her eternal deposit, and the next person in line, a, bes- a bespectacled, Guy in a well-tailored suit seemed to be just making a withdrawal. There we go. Wally thought, it isn't forever. It only feels like it. He tried to be patient. 
It just wasn't easy. Not when you were the fastest man alive. Not when you were the flash. Eventually, after a great many sighs and lots of impatient toe-tapping, he reached the cash machine. As he slipped $8 in the withdrawal receipt into his wallet, a metallic trilling noise began to emit, emanate from his pocket. Wally West left the front of the cash machine so quickly that to those behind him in line, he seemed to have simply disappeared. The world around him blurred slightly and slowed. So great was his speed that to him it appeared as though everything else was standing still. Stashing his wallet in his back pocket, he ran to, to the street corner where the vendor was selling the cash and carry roses. The trailing noise continued to sound in his pocket, but he wasn't ready to answer it just yet. Emergency or not, he just needed a few seconds. The flower seller, an olive-skinned man with sad eyes and a drooping mustache, had propped himself up on the rear legs of the chair he had set out for himself. When Wally paused in front of him, a full-grown man who appeared to materialize out of thin air, the man nearly tipped himself over. In the fraction of an instant, when the flower man's balance could have gone either way, Wally slipped his JLA comlink, the one he carried when he was in his street clothes, out of his pocket and thumbed the button on its side. The moment he did so, a figure loomed into view on the comms tiny screen with, with carefully mused black hair and a dark green mask that covered only the area around his eyes. Apparently, Green Lantern was on monitor duty at the Justice League's lunar base, the Watchtower. Kyle, hang on a second, Wally said. The flower man was staring at him, sad eyes now wide with curiosity. Wally smiled, pulled out a pair of 20s, and asked for his roses. The bouquets were already prepared, wrapped up nice with baby's breath and ribbon. Okay, he said, glancing back into the comm link. What's up? Green Lantern's expression was grim. London. Some freaks out in the front of Buckingham Palace, threatening to banish the palace and everyone inside to some limbo world that the Queen doesn't knight him or something like that. Well, he handed the flower man the money and took the bouquet, waiting for his change. I don't get it, he told Kyle. So some nut jobs running around in front of the palace, isn't that what those stone-faced guards are for? At least eight of the palace guards have already been sucked into the void this particular nut job has opened in front of the palace. Not to mention an unknown number of civilians in half a block of prime London real estate. For a second, that seemed an eternity. Wally started, stared into, this, into the tiny screen on the comlink. When the flower man cleared his throat and Wally looked up seeing recognition of the, of the man's eyes, the world knew that Wally West was the Flash, but even here in his chosen hometown, people seemed surprised when they actually ran into him. This guy had finally figured it out. The vendor handed Wally his change. Thanks, he said, glancing back at the comlink. Who's on it? Me and you, Green Lantern replied. Ready for transfer? Wally shook his head. Uh, give me half a minute. He smiled at the flower vendor, and then he ran. In the time it took the man with the drooping mustache to blink in surprise at the way he had disappeared as abruptly as he had appeared, Wally was ha already halfway across town. His every heartbeat, his, his every breath, was in tandem with an energy field that existed within the fabric of all living things. It was called the Speed Force, and over the years, since he had first become the Flash, 
Wally had discovered a great many things he could accomplish by tapping into that energy. His uniform, for instance, was not made of cotton or or lycra or any other fabric for that matter. Rather, it was a construct of his own will, fashioned from pure concentrated speed force, which was pretty cool as far as Wally was concerned. By the time the flower vendor, now miles behind him, had blinked a second time, Wally had already gathered the speed force and clad himself in a version of the scarlet uniform that had first been made famous by his uncle Barry Allen, the second man to bear the title of the Flash. Wally was a third, and though he had accomplished things neither of his predecessors had ever dreamt about, he still felt he had a long way to go to live up to the example Uncle Barry and Jay Garrick, the first Flash, had set for him. He was nothing but a breeze, a blur, as he crossed Keystone City as a red phantom, glimpsed out of the corner of the eye. He appeared inside the Dixie kitchen and penciled himself and Linda in for a 7 p.m. reservation. The hostess had been in the midst of writing down another reservation and Wally snatched the pencil from her hand and returned it so quickly she barely missed a stroke. Then he was off again, racing for home. So much of the time, he existed in a world apart from everyone else on another plane of reality entirely. The population of the city seemed like department stores, man- mannequins to the flash. There, there were times when it was dis- disconcert- disconcerting, but the legacy he, that he had inherited was a constant reminder of what he was fighting for. He would never let himself feel too apart from the rest of the world, and if he ever drifted well, Linda was there to remind him. She was hanging up a new mirror in the bedroom when he raced into the house and up the stairs. He paused outside the room, not wanting to startle her into dropping the mirror. For a moment, as he slowed himself down, he simply relished looking at her. Her hair was like black silk, her features like those of a porcelain doll, yet in her eyes was a fierce intelligence that had made her all the more beautiful. Hey, he said. Linda glanced over and smiled as she tried to get the mirror to hang straight. Well, hey yourself, she replied. Care to give me a hand with this? It was out of her hands and on the wall before she could, before she completed the sentence. When the flash stood in front of his wife, holding both of her hands in, in his and marveling as he always did at, at his great fortune. Gotta go to London, he told her. I'll be back soon. We've got reservations at Dixie Kitchen at 7, and I left you something on the bed. Linda frowned and turned around, a smile spreading across her features as she saw the bouquet of roses he had slipped in her past, slipped in past her to, to place on the breadspread. When he turned back around to ask him, when she turned back around to ask him what the occasion was, she discovered that he was already gone. After standing in the line at the ATM for tw- for 12 seemingly endless minutes of purgatory, Wally just wanted to run. The world warped around him and a smile spread across his lips as his legs pumped beneath him. He would have preferred to run from Keystone City across the eastern seaboard of the United States and the Atlantic Ocean all the way to London, but at that distance, even the fastest man alive could not beat teleportation. This is the flash, he said, tapping the comlink in the in the right earpiece of his mask. I'm a go. He, he stopped short. The watchtower's teleportation system 
really a modified version of so-called boom tube technology locked into his unique energy signature. And then Flash felt a skin prickling. It was a bit like having a low charge electrical current run through his body. His vision blurred into darkness and when he blinked and the world swam back into focus, he was on the other side of the world, London, England. With the time difference, it must have been about 7.30 in the evening that here. The late spring day was fading to night. There was a park nearby and a black wrought iron fence and on the other side of a high wall the spires of Buckingham Palace. Police cordons had been set up to keep people back, but there were still onlookers crowding forward, trying to get a glimpse of the chaos. Flash figured it was mostly tourists that the locals would be smart enough to know that when some moron with superhuman abilities tore a black sucking vacuum in the in the pavement in the middle of the street in front of the palace, it was time to go somewhere anywhere else. In front of the palace gates, there were dozens of guards, both the red-coated boys in their high, frayed black hats that you saw in all the pictures, and, and a contingent of the men in the sort of dark suits usually a, associated with the, with the American Secret Service. Special palace security, apparently. But what surprised Flash was that the high-hatted police guard weren't all for pomp and circumstance. Inside the police cordon and in full view of the gates, a sinkhole had appeared in the street. Yet there were no rough edges of broken pavement and crumbling, and nothing was crumbling. It was as if reality had been melted down in the in place and someone had started to stir it so that it swirled in a maelstrom of darkness. This abyss in the middle of the road, all of it was presided over by a thin, gray-haired man with, a, with wild eyes and, and a countenance sense of style. He was about as ordinary-looking a man as Flash had ever seen, yet the way he held his hands out and the way the air between the maelstrom and the tips of his fingers wavered like July heat off blacktop told Flash this was indeed the guy. He took in all of this in a fraction of a second. In the next, the evening twilight took on a distinctly verdant hue. A green light bathed everything in sight. Flash glanced up as Kyle levitated above him, held aloft by the energy that emanated from inside the ring he wore. Once, once there had been a great many Green Lanterns in the universe. Now there was only Kyle. Right, listen you, he shouted the slender man in charge of the maelstrom. Get her, mess, get her majesty out of here. Now, I'll be a knight of the order of the British Empire by half seven, or there won't be a British Empire left when I'm through. Apparently, the man was so caught up in his own lunacy, he had not even no noticed the arrival of two members of the Justice League. Flash stared at him a moment wondering where his strange warping powers had come from and why the guy was so obsessed with becoming a knight and hoping the people that had been swallowed by, by that weird maelstrom were somehow still alive. Excuse me, sir, nut job, Green Lantern called to the man. Maybe you want to think about this a little bit? You know, go on a quest for the grail or something, prove you're worthy. 
Lantern raised his hand and tendrils of green energy erupted from his ring and, and leaped at the man on the brink of the void. Without glancing backward, the man raised a hand as if to ward off the attack and another and another wound tore into the fabric of the world, a swirling vortex of darkness that sucked the tendrils of power from the ring into its void. In that moment, it seemed to, the, to Flash that all of London held, held its breath. There was silence in front of the palace as the police, guards, and onlookers all turned to stare at Green Lantern. Kyle did not look pleased at all. A wave of menace radiated out from the gray-haired man in his charcoal trousers, bone white shirt, and black tie. He, he had looked ridiculous there on the edge of that churning hole in reality, but all of that changed when he turned slowly to face Green Lantern and Flash. His eyes were black maelstroms as well, sucking holes in the universe. Flash swore, but the single syllable was left behind him as he, as he raced at the man. His thoughts were a whirl as he gauged the probability that taking the lunatic down would close the abyss in the street, and, and, that, and what that might do to the people who had been sucked into it, if they were even still alive. He would have to distract that. He would have to distract the freak, get his attention, move his focus away from the maelstrom, long enough for Green Lantern to probe the pit from his power ring and try to determine if the people could be retrieved. He ran at the green-haired man, his speed so great that the maniac could not possibly see him. But still, the man looked at him. A cloud of nothing burst from eyes. Twin tornadoes that tore into the air between them, and yet another portal appeared, another window into the dark limbo he had threatened to swallow all of London with. The Flash could not stop time. Stop in time. He, one instant he was racing toward the man, thinking to spin a cyclone around him, trapping him there, perhaps sucking the oxygen from his lungs and driving him to unconsciousness. Then, next instant, he had plunged into that gray, formless, swelling abyss, and he was trembling in the dark. Tumbling in the dark. Weightless in the void, he gazed about the shapeless, colorless limbo, but he saw no sign of, of the portal through which he had entered. No way back. Daylight required stealth. On the roof of an abandoned built, an, an abandoned factory building in what had once been the garment district of Hub City, there were a dozen square columns that had acted as events in the years when the Saxonville Hat Company had manufactured their products here. Also atop the building was an old water tower, a huge tin tub on stilts that sat on the, on the roof collecting the rain. Once upon a time, before sprinkler systems were required by safety laws, the water tower would have provided a good drenching in the event of a fire. This day, it provided only shade. Shadows. Within those shadows lurked the Batman. He moved swiftly from the cover of the water tower to the two-foot wall that ran around the edges of the roof and ducked down beside one of the vent columns blended as best he could. There weren't many cars on the street below. This section of Hub City had been left to rot over the decade by a succession of mayoral 
administrations. But, but he was aware of everything going on around him as he kept his eyes on the windows of nearby buildings and on the street. Batman disliked wearing the cape and cow out in the open during the day. Unlike the other members of the League, he was only human, trained to the peak of human capacity, true, but he had normal DNA and no special strength or power or weapon to give him an edge over the criminals and madmen he made it his business to bring to justice. His edge was, his edge was the myth, the darkness of the night, the fear that his presence brought out in, in people in the years since the murder of his parents and the vow he had made to himself to combat crime in Gotham City. Bruce Wayne had crafted for himself an urban legend called the Batman. Those who believed Batman existed between the vigilante as grim and merciless, knew the vigilante as grim and merciless, but it was the uncertainty, the idea that Batman might well be a supernatural creature that made them all hesitate. In order to perpetuate that, he avoided being photographed whenever possible. It when circumstances demanded he be in costume during daylight hours, he did his best to move in secrecy. He crouched now at the edge of the roof and studied the face of the building immediately across from Saxonville Hats. Like many of the old brick structures in the garment district, it had been converted to apartments years ago. The fourth floor third window from the left was the was the bedroom of Zachary Graff, a 33-year-old train, con, train conductor whose long runs often left him with layover days in Gotham City. Graff had been killing people in Gotham, homeless men and women who'd found shelter in one of the city's train stations. The train man would douse them with gasoline while they were sleeping and set them on fire. The first such murder had taken place while Batman was out of Gotham on league business. Circumstances conspired so that he was in the midst of containing a breakout from Arkham Asylum when the second killing had taken place. The night Graf took his third victim, Batman had been searching for him, patrolling Gotham with his usual vigilance, but keeping an eye particularly on the train stations. He had been in the eaves of North Square Station when it went down all the way across the city and river station. People had been murdered, innocents burned to death. By the time of the second killing, Batman had eliminated as had eliminated as suspects any of the known arsonists in Gotham. He had trawled the homeless shelters, trying to determine if there was anyone with motive, if the deceased had any enemies. Subsequent to the second burning, he had established that there was no word of a stalker on the streets of Gotham. He had, score, he had scoured the crime scene several times, but even with the police cordon, a busy train station was not going to hold on to evidence for very long. What ate at him the most was, was this man who had turned himself into one of the world's foremost detectives, is that it had taken him so long to see that the real connection was not the homelessness of the victims, but the location of their murders the comings and goings of the trains. The evening of the third murder, he had already begun to examine digital video from security cameras and employee work schedules from those days. The morning after the third murder, Batman had identified Zachary Graff as his primary suspect. It weighed heavily upon him that it had been too late to save that third victim. 
Henry Louis Bottoms, 57 years of age, ironically a former train conductor himself, before alcoholism cost him his job and his family. But Batman was determined that Bottoms would be the last. Hub City, far from home in Gotham, out in the daylight in costume, the case settled around him like a shroud as he crouched there on the edge of the building. Nothing moved in the window of Zachary Graff's apartment. Nothing at all. Batman settled in and awaited, gaze, gaze taking in every detail, every car that passed, every kid that went by on a skateboard. School would have just gone out, but there, were, but there had been kids on the street earlier, kids who had not bothered to go to school. His head turned only slightly as he scanned the street and the faces of the buildings. Left, right, left. On the next suite, Batman froze. In the doorway of a smaller, better restored apartment building next to Graff's, there stood a man in a dark suit, set back in the shadow of that doorway, out of the sun, lingering, watching. Batman's eyes narrowed. Who else was keeping an eye out for Graff? Or was this more mere coincidence and not someone looking for the killer at all? He studied the overall building build of the man in the shadows and thought of Vic, of Vic Sage. Sage was a reporter in Hub City, but he moonlighted as a vigilante himself. Batman did a quick visual calculation of height and weight, and then frowned heavily, not Sage. A moving van rumbled down the street, hydraulic brakes shrieking as it reached a stop sign. A small group of teenagers moved through the neighborhood, smoking cigarettes and hanging on one another, strolling and laughing and looking tough. All attitude, but Batman read no real trouble in their body language. The man in the doorway stepped out into the light. Even from this distance, Batman knew him immediately. The face belonged to a private detective named John Jones. Of course, the face was not real. It was in its way as much a mask as the cowl Batman wore to disguise his own features. John Jones did not exist, not really. Though he had been a police detective and now continued to take certain cases in private, Jones was just one of dozens of identities used by John Jones. One of, one of the few survivors of an ancient Martian civilization. Once upon a time, Batman would have had a difficult time believing such things. But in the years since he had first dedicated himself to his cause, he had seen things far more extraordinary, extraterrestrial. Life seemed almost commonplace to him now. On his home world, John had been the equivalent of a policeman. On Earth, the Martian Manhunter was a founding member of the Justice League and the only individual to have been numbered among its ranks during the entirety of the League's de decade-long history. Though he never seemed to garner the kind of attention Superman or Wonder Woman did, John was in many ways the heart and soul of the League. He was also a, power, he was also a powerhouse in his own right. The power of the Martian Manhunter's mind was extraordinary. He was a telepath, a shapeshifter, and able to control his molecular structure to the point where he could alter his physical density and even become invisible. He could fly. He could channel blasts of destructive energy through his eyes, yet there was more to John than power. He was a gentle being, a philosopher and scientist, not to mention a skilled detective. 
Under normal circumstances, Batman preferred to work alone whenever possible, and when it was not possible, preferred to run the game, to call the plays. This was not an issue of ego, but of survival. If he understood and manipulated all of the variables in a given event, he could control the outcome. He could stay alive. Batman did not like variables. Still, John, or John Jones, had obviously been been hired either to investigate the burnings in Gotham or to look into Zachary Graff without being aware if Graff was a serial killer. It was possible there was another reason for the Martian Man Hunter to be on the particular street in Hub City on that very day, but the odds were infinitesimal. With, with, the, with a glance around the roof and then across the street, Batman mentally calculated the distance and the wind speed, working out, out what it would take for him to get across to the other building and down into the street with John without being too conspicuous. He, he reached for his belt and unclipped the grappling gun. Artie's already eyeing the ledge. He would have to target to swing over out over the street and the parked SUV whose whose roof he would land on. Breaking some of his momentum before somersaulting to the ground only only feet from where John stood. There was a chance he he there was a chance he'd seen, but every little that graph would witness this move. But very little that Graf would witness this move. And it would be better if he and John worked to, together on this. The circumstances need to be controlled. Batman rose up from his place beside the vent column and extended his hand, thumb on the on the trigger of the grappling gun. Zachary Graf's bedroom window exploded outward and the blast from a shotgun, the, re- the report from the weapon echoing of the faces of, of buildings up and down the street. Batman was in motion before the echo died. The Princess Diana relished the feeling of the wind in her hair and the beauty of the city of Paris. Sprawled far from, but sprawled far below her, the many lanterns and street lamps along the boulevards and the banks of the river Seine, more than earning the nickname City of Lights, Side by side, she hovered in the air with Superman, the two of them scanning the city with particular attention paid to the river. The Notre Dame Cathedral stood on the river's edge, its majesty undeniable. The Louvre called to Diana, as did so many other smaller museums, Musée d'Orsay, the Rodin Museum, and she gazed across the city to the stark white steeple of Sacré-Cœur, high atop Montmartre. Spotlights like beacons called her. You know, Cal, she said, this is not the way I'd prefer to pass time in Paris. Superman looked up, focusing on her for the first time in several minutes. His expression was grim, the frustration showing on his face even in profile. In the dark, he seemed to be clad in shadow, save for the red cape, and even that seemed to dark now. I know Diana, but the French ambassador specified or uh, specifically asked for Superman and Wonder Woman. And if these monster tales are true, there's a good reason for us to be here. He put the weight on the word if, and Diana knew why. There had been dozens of attacks in Paris in the previous week, seven of them ending in death. According to eyewitness, eyewitnesses and survivors, the perpetual 
the per the perpetrator per the perpetrators of this violence were not human, but rather horrible monstrosities that reportedly had emerged from and later retreated into into the scene. But but Superman and Wonder Woman had spent more than two hours flying low over the city, over the river, and seen no trace of anything out of the ordinary. Now dusk had come and gone. True, she admitted, but it would have been much more sense for Arthur to come along. Superman nodded, but the French government doesn't like Atlantean politics, so there was no way they were going to ask Aquaman for help. There was no arguing the truth of that, but Diana still could not help but think Arthur would have been helpful here. If there was anything in the sign, they would have not found it. They would likely stay another hour or so, make another pass over the river in case the creatures had suddenly decided they were solely nocturnal. Solely nocturnal. And then they would return to the watchtower before finally going home. Another pass, she suggested. Superman nodded. One more. I hate the idea of leaving without having resolved this. If we don't find any monsters, there's a lot we can do. They set off again, flying slowly, two figures silhouetted against the night sky. Following the river as it flowed through Paris, after several minutes of silent introspection, Superman glanced at her. It really is a beautiful city. When we're done, if you want, we could have dinner before we go back to the watchtower. Wonder Woman smiled. You don't want to ruin your your dinner, Clark. I don't need Lois mad at me. Superman raised an eyebrow, but he, re- but he, but returned his attention to the river below. Most of the time, Diana called him Cal, which was short as, which was short for his birth name, Cal L. Though he took complete, though he looked completely human, Sup- Superman was the last son of Krypton, the only survivor from a planet that had destroyed itself years ago. As a baby, his parents had sent him to Earth so that he might escape the destruction of Krypton. He had been discovered by a kind, childless couple, the Kents, who had raised him on their Kansas farm. To the world, Cal L. was Clark Kent, a reporter for Metropolis's major newspaper, The Daily Planet. His wife, Lois Lane, was also a reporter. He was a reporter there. Though Lois knew, of course, that her husband was Superman, somehow they managed to rise above the pressures of the journalistic profession and the chaos that, that his heroism inevitably brought them and to live a comparatively normal life. Diana thought it was sort of precious, but only in the best possible way. Kyle was her best friend in the, in the world, and other than Lois, she was his. She was glad they were happy. Most of the time she called him Cal because to her, that was who he was. Superman never complained. He never asked her to call him Clark. And when she did, it was always to tease him, to remind him of the irony that the individual the world called Superman was also Clark Kent, farm boy from Kansas, who liked to make pancakes for his wife on Sunday mornings. Now Superman smiled at her. Tenor Metropolis isn't for many hours yet, Diana. And Lois is working on a story that's driving her crazy. So more than likely, it will be me bringing home pizza. I don't think she'll mind. 
Of course, she'll be jealous that I was in Paris without her, but I can always bring her over when she's done with the, with the piece she's working on. Wonder Woman shifted in the air, turning, slight, turning slightly and descending toward the water. Something had caught her eye, not a boat and not litter care, carelessly tossed away by a tourist. Something under the water, dark and moving swiftly beneath the surface. Cal, she began. I see it, he replied. A scream tore through the darkness above the city of lights. So that is it for chapter one. Um, I want to thank you for um, listening. If you made it this far, thank you. Um, I'm going to point out a few things. So if you have been keeping a keen, uh, I guess, ear out for um, while I was reading, I think you'd be able to tell that I believe that many of the characters that were introduced at the prelude are going to come up like um, with the whole water, like with the, well, I mean, rain. It was rain that dropped on them. I'm pretty sure that that is what um, is giving these people powers because I'm pretty sure that Roger, the very first guy we met, was the person who fought um, the Flash and Green Lantern, or that is fighting because we never saw the end of that battle. Um, We jumped around a bit. We saw Batman, uh, St. John Jones, maybe even um, Batman... um, Batman's, uh, the dude that he's looking for, the arsonist, um, or I wouldn't necessarily know if he's named, if he's an arsonist, he's just kind of like a murderer, he does burn people, but I don't know what you specifically call him besides a murderer, so he apparently, I don't know if he knew Batman was there, we don't really know what, what's happening with that situation, kind of left on a, on a, off a cliffhanger, but I liked how the story so far has been, especially in that Batman section, was dripping like a lot of like really getting you to know the characters like if you don't know batman it's like giving you a bit like make you understand the character like it makes sense why batman wouldn't like to go out during the day because he's just a normal guy and that's kind of like what i was saying is like he like or he's not a normal guy but you know he's still human at the end of the day you shoot him he bleeds he's probably gonna die you know if you shoot at him especially if you hit him he's definitely gonna die so he's not like, you know, he's not like Superman who's, like, you know, practically indestructible. Um, Batman is like, you know, so I found that interesting. And so in the next part of, of this chapter, which was the Wonder Woman and Superman um, part, I was actually thinking because it was like the dynamic between Wonder Woman and uh, Superman was interesting, and um, I'll I'll explain if if I'm if you know this I don't really need to explain it, but there was just something like kind of flirty about it, like like when I imagined when I was reading it I imagined them smiling and you know obviously they don't really want to be there because it's like but it was mandatory because the like Paris some high official in Paris said come over I need you to check out this stuff and. Um, but it seemed like, you know, it was funny because it really showed that Superman is like, I was worried there for a second because I don't like mean Superman. Like, I'm a, I'm a big avid for, like, Golden Age Superman or, like, you know, like, if you've seen the original Superman movies, I really like that Superman because he's a good guy. And w- at that first part where they're describing 
where they're describing uh, Superman being like very serious and like he's cloaked in like kind of like this darkness um, worried me for a second. But then his reaction to um, Diana um, kind of like, you know, asking for like maybe dinner or something, that whole dinner situation where they're talking about having dinner in Paris and then uh, Superman gets confused when uh, Diana is like, no, 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 uh, we don't need to. Uh, Lois will get mad at me anyway. It's like he gets confused and I feel like that's a very good Superman moment because he is like a really innocent guy if you think about it. I mean, he was born, he was, you know, he was sent to Earth and he grew up as just a farm kid. So it's like, it fits really well that like he kind of has that reaction because he probably doesn't realize why she would get upset with that but then he's he thinks about it a bit more and then I think he kind of realizes it or he doesn't think that like maybe Lois will get jealous I don't know it's just it's a really funny scene uh for me I thought it was I thought it was pretty funny um with uh besides that though I don't think there's much else to comment on but yeah uh so far I'm enjoying it I mean I kind of wish that we kind of stuck with the characters because it's it's been leaving us on cliffhangers like uh we hear scream we hear Batman um I guess almost get shot at or if he gets shot at um the Flash getting in a vortex so we're probably I feel like the next chapter maybe we'll see what's going on with the rest of them but it's, it's interesting. I guess the rain has something to do with all these people getting powers. But yeah, um, besides that, uh, thank you for listening to chapter one of, um, of this, of the midnight readings. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow with, uh, chapter two. See ya.